In just under three months, world delegates will meet in Paris to try again to thrash out an agreement on climate change. It will be the 21st time such a summit has been held. But despite the dire warnings about increased levels of CO2, the world appears to be struggling to drop its fossil fuel-consuming habits. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme explores the still close relationship between fossil fuels and almost every aspect of modern life. No one spending a night in front of the television could be under any doubts about the enduring romance of the motor car. Pure class. Driving pleasure. But whether it's a rich person's toy or a mud-spattered ute doing essential work down on the farm, every kilometre of travel by almost all the world's vehicles puts carbon into the atmosphere, that was previously locked away safely underground, and it brings climate change incrementally closer. Despite years of research, and no fewer than five reports issued by the United Nations, the world economy is still, and increasingly, dependent on fossil fuels. I'm Eric Frickberg, and this insight asks, what's the future of fossil fuels? Can the world live without them? If not, can we live with them? In some ways, the debate on fossil fuels became a slanging match between polar opposites years ago. Environmental protesters would argue the world can't keep on burning them without changing the climate. Their opponents would say the economy needs fossil fuels to keep on going. But there are signs that that gap might be narrowing slightly. One signal came from the oil industry itself. As major companies from the oil and gas sector, we acknowledge that the current trend of greenhouse gas emissions exceeds what is needed to limit temperature rise to no more than two degrees above pre-industrial levels. The challenge is how to meet greater energy demand with less CO2. We stand ready to play our part. These words came in a letter to world leaders signed by the heads of six oil companies, including the giants Shell and BP. In it, they stated they were already trying to reduce carbon emissions. For us to do more, we need governments across the world to provide us with clear, stable, long-term, ambitious policy frameworks. This would reduce uncertainty and help stimulate investments in the right low-carbon technologies and the right resources at the right prices. This dramatic statement on climate change comes from oil industry executives who are usually written off as prime offenders by their environmental opponents. The company's natural focus is on extracting oil from the ground, which causes a CO2 build-up in the atmosphere, rather than looking to sustainable alternatives. The trouble is the energy industry has helped make the world what it is, and their products are needed to keep it going. People like Chris Baker of the Mining and Resources Lobby Group Stratera argue that to even think about going without fossil fuels like oil or coal is completely unrealistic. Well, I think we've uh, railed against the wishful thinking that coal is a sunset in industry. I think uh, we need to look at the facts and move from there, not what we would like the facts to be. Some of those facts can be found in reports from the International Energy Agency. Coal, for instance, is a controversial source of energy. Some people subscribe to the ABC theory, anything but coal, because of its environmental impact. But the reality is people are burning coal and they're burning more. While the rate of that growth is slowing, 
The International Energy Agency forecasts coal use to grow by 2.1% a year to 2019. That'll bring annual consumption to 9 billion tonnes. And that means the world burns the output of 4,500 Stockton mines every year. Looking at oil, the agency puts consumption at 95 million barrels, or 12 million tonnes. That's the content of 30 of the largest supertankers in the world, and it's burnt every day. One of the signatories of the letter on climate change from the energy companies was Bob Dudley. He's the chief executive of BP. But in an interview with an American firm, Cambridge Energy Research Associates, he said fossil fuels will continue to be used anyway. We have lots of debates with people outside who say that uh, hydrocarbons are going away, or fossil fuels are going away, and certainly I think the world is in a long wavelength transition to lower carbon energy. But 2035, the percentage of energy demand will be supplied 27% with natural gas, 27% with oil, 27% with coal. So you add that up, it's over 80% of the world's energy will be supplied by fossil fuels. Uh, and renewables, 3% today maybe, uh, moving up to 8%. There is a scientific consensus that the world cannot afford to keep on doing this because of the risk of climate change. And that view was reinforced in a recent speech by the U.S. Secretary of State, John Kerry. 97% of peer-reviewed climate studies confirm that climate change is happening and that human activity is largely responsible. That is a dramatic statement of fact that no one of good conscience has a right to ignore. An associate professor in environmental studies at Victoria University, Rafe Chapman, says the need for action is more urgent than ever. When you burn any amount of, um, of fossil fuel and CO2 goes into the atmosphere, it gradually comes out of the atmosphere over time. It's absorbed into the ocean and some of it into, into land and rocks. Um, but... It hangs around for a very long time, and, and the problem with that is that it traps um, infrared radiation. <laughs> I won't go into the scientific details, but it, it traps uh, warmth in the atmosphere, so it's like a duvet around the Earth. And we've got to get those concentrations of carbon dioxide down, and the only way to do that is to reduce our emissions to zero. But the world appears to be in a logjam. People burn fossil fuels even though they know they shouldn't, and they have few plans to really change their ways. One reason for this impasse is that fossil fuels have been utterly indispensable up till now. In two and a half centuries of industrial progress, fossil fuels have changed the lives of billions of people from pre-industrial agrarian days. This from a British diplomat in charge of climate change negotiations, John Ashton, on the contribution made by fossil fuels. Without them, the prosperity enjoyed by billions and aspired to by billions more would not exist. Human beings would be living shorter, more difficult lives, exposed to more hazards, trapped within narrower limits of experience, opportunity and imagination. John Ashton was actually paid by Westminster to be a special ambassador to fight against fossil fuels, yet even he couldn't deny the huge contribution they'd made to modern life, from jet travel to plastics. Chris Baker of the lobby group Stratera argues fossil fuels have changed the simple village labourer of the 1700s into the ambitious urbanite of the modern world. 
You couldn't overstate the importance of fossil fuels. They have been the facilitator, the enabler of that transformation. Without access to uh, low-cost energy, that transformation wouldn't have happened, and that energy has been made available through the various forms of fossil fuels. Cameron Madgwick of the Petroleum Production and Exploration Association puts it another way. Hydrocarbons and petroleum products are used in many, many things, you know, going from some of the clothes we're wearing through to, you know, the electronic components in our phones, uh, you, you name it, it would be hard to look around the room you're sitting in and not see something that's based on a petroleum product. It's, it's fueled an enormous transformation in the standard and quality of life that billions of people around the world enjoy. Fossil fuels have clearly powered industrial giants like Britain, then the United States, then China, but even here, fossil fuels, especially coal, played a vital role in developing modern New Zealand. 600 tonnes of high-quality bituminous coal were hauled up the shaft every day, and nearly 300 men found steady employment. It became known as a good mine by the men who worked there, it was well ventilated and a dry mine, despite the fact that relatively porous rock separated the Grey River from the workings below. Coal production in New Zealand rose to 3 million tonnes a year in the early 1960s, then to 5 million tonnes 10 years ago. Even more recently, production was 4 million tonnes last year. Much of that was exported, especially for steelmaking in countries like India or Japan. But the mining company Bathurst Resources says plenty is sold locally as well. Almost 800,000 tonnes is destined for market this year, and Bathurst Chief Executive Richard Taken explains who is buying. We've got major dairy companies, three different companies in the South Island. We've got food manufacturers, we've got schools, we supply coal to hospitals, meat packers, manufacturers, abattoirs, yeah, that, that sort of business. Electricity is six to seven times more expensive per gigajoule, which is how we normally measure energy, and there is no reticulated gas. So the only alternative is burning of wood products, which are very expensive and which are not readily available, actually, in the South Island. The Minister of Energy, Simon Bridges, agrees, saying neither wood chips nor natural gas have any real chance of displacing coal anytime soon. In the South Island, coal still very much is the energy source for heavy industry, whether that's in wood processing, dairy, or actually in the, the hospitals and the schools and so on. So it's not a situation today where we could simply say, right, we're going to stop using coal here. Um, it's certainly not a case where I think on anyone's projections, realistically, we could stop coal use in the South Island today. Chris Baker of Stratera says the situation is even more critical in economies like India, which are clawing their way out of poverty and need coal for their growing steel industry. But anti-coal activist and former Green Party co-leader Jeanette Fitzsimon says by burning fossil fuels for whatever reason, people are harming the entire planet in the long run. Fossil fuels, which are coal and petroleum and gas, are the main source of the carbon dioxide that is accumulating in the atmosphere and heating up the planet and changing the climate. So it's leading to um, hugely intense storms, more floods, more heat waves, more droughts, ice caps melting, glaciers melting, sea level rising, oceans getting acid, uh, 
we don't want to go there. That's a one-way street. It just gets worse and worse and worse unless we limit our use of fossil fuels. Professor Chapman says after years of delays, the world needs to start making progress now. If we don't, the climate change problem will be unmanageable. Um, The big target that the world is trying now to get to, or not go beyond to be exact, is two degrees Celsius of warming. And if we kept on emitting carbon from burning fossil fuels the way we're doing now, we would run out of space, if you like, atmospheric space, and go beyond two degrees C in about 20 to 30 years from now. So that's how long we've got to bring our emissions track down to zero, basically. We've got a generation. One carbon expert has compared the delay in making real change on the climate to a lazy rugby team messing about in the first half, so all its tries have to be scored in the second. This is despite world leaders pledging four years ago at the climate change conference in Cancun in Mexico to limit the rise in global temperatures to two degrees centigrade. To put it another way, the world's carbon budget is already all but spent. We have used already two-thirds of the total budget, which was approximately 3,000 billion tonnes of CO2, and humanity has used 2,000 of those 3,000 billion tonnes already, so what's remaining is only 1,000 billion tonnes. The speaker here is a Belgian professor and one of the superstars of the climate change campaign. Jean-Pascal Van Ypersel is vice-chairman of the United Nations body which deals with this matter, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. His argument sounds complicated, but it isn't. From James Watt's first steam engine to the latest flick of an iPad, the world has already emitted 2,000 billion tonnes of CO2, and only 1,000 billion more remain available to be released if the two-degree target is to be met. If humanity wants to stay below a warming of two degrees above the uh, level before the Industrial Revolution, the uh, total amount of CO2 that can still be emitted is no more than 1,000 billion tons of CO2. Now, 1,000 billion tons of CO2 might seem a lot, But when you know that humanity today emits approximately 40 billion tons of CO2 every year, everybody understands that it's urgent to reduce emissions because it means at that rate it's only 25 years left. So is there a solution to all this, or even a hint that one might be available? Could the newfound concern by six giant oil companies indicate that something has got to give, and it just has? Rob Jager is chairman of Shell New Zealand and says oil companies have been aware of the dangers of climate change for some time but have not been happy with the way the world has gone about dealing with it. He says attempts have been made to disincentivize carbon emissions by putting a price on those emissions by making people pay for their pollution. But he says those attempts to put a price on the carbon have not been effective in changing people's behaviour. The important message is that it's got to be meaningful. I mean, we've had carbon pricing in some form in different places around the world for, uh, for a number of years, but I don't think it has been as meaningful as it uh, can and should be, and as a result of that, uh, it hasn't really made the difference that I think it needs to. So it needs to be meaningful. It needs to impact people's consumption behaviour. 
It needs to impact investment decisions, and it needs to create some more certainty around future investment decisions. Rob Jager insists his company has a responsibility to provide people with the energy they need, and he says this can still be done by switching to lower emissions fuels, from the worst, coal to gas and then to biofuels. Cindy Baxter of Greenpeace says the move by the six companies is a step in the right direction, but it also reflects a new reality facing big corporations. They know that legislation on climate change globally is coming, and they want certainty. These companies are actually saying, right, we know there's going to be a price on carbon, start that now so that we can start planning for it. There are some contradictions, especially with Shell at the moment, because it's um, started drilling an entirely new um, area in the Arctic. But um, these companies need to make that transition away from fossil fuels. A price on carbon is going to help them do that. It's 8 o'clock in the morning and I'm standing beside a congested motorway. The drivers in these cars, if they bother to think about it, might argue global warming isn't really their doing when agriculture emits half of all the greenhouse gases in New Zealand, far eclipsing car drivers. Surely it's car drivers, not farmers, who could make the first sacrifice, especially when they drive down the motorway from Lower Hutt to Wellington and there's a train service running alongside the highway. Surely they're the ones who should take the first step. Despite the apparent ease of targeting drivers to reduce emissions, it's unlikely to result in a quick fix, even if it was politically feasible. Effective public transport is patchy in New Zealand and car use is deeply integrated with employment. Mark Stockdale of the Automobile Association says the majority of people, 85%, use cars to get to work and 75% of unemployed people don't have a driver's licence. And he goes on, car driving isn't the main problem anyway. Out of all of uh, New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions, 20% of that comes from the transport sector, and only 12% is actually from um, light vehicles, cars, vans and utes. The other 8% is from heavy transport, and to put it another way, If you eliminated all of the cars on the road, we would still have 88% of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions problem. One thing often mentioned in the fight against climate change is the future role of the electric car. Car drivers might be responsible for only 12% of total emissions, but 12% of emissions would still be a saving worth making if it could be achieved. The idea is that instead of buying fossil fuels, car owners would plug their cars into the mains, which by that time would deliver 90% renewable electricity at the very least. Sounds like a good idea, but it too has flaws. Mark Stockdale argues that it seems to be a lot better than it is. I think there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind. that The average age of the um, car in New Zealand is 14 years, so we have a reasonably old fleet. You know, even if... Um, Lots of electric cars are being sold in New Zealand today. You know, it's going to be sort of 14 years before we sort of start to see them having a significant impact on the fleet. Now, put that in context, 100,000 um, brand new vehicles are sold in New Zealand every year and another 100,000 used imports from Japan. So that's 200,000 new vehicles going on the road every year. And at the moment, there's only 750 electric vehicles on the road. So it's going to be some time before we see some... Um, Uh, noticeable changes. 
nor is it possible to point an accusing finger at the electricity industry. Globally, electricity is a problem. The International Energy Agency says coal is used to produce twice as much electricity as the next most common source. But New Zealand has increased its renewable electricity ratio from about two-thirds to about four-fifths in the past few years and is well on track to reach its goal of 90% by 2025. Even Contact Energy, which is one of two major electricity companies that still burn natural gas, has increased its renewable percentage from 69 to 76%. Its chief executive, Dennis Barnes, predicts Contact Energy will go even further, but still he sounds a note of caution. Reduction in carbon emissions for the country should be targeted at the lowest cost first, because any investment to reduce carbon emissions will be borne by customers. And the electricity sector is doing a good job. The investments of recent years have been in wind and geothermal, and you can see that the renewable energy percentage is increasing over time. So my response would be, well, let's have a look at the facts and the maths of what the lowest cost next carbon reduction is, and it isn't necessarily in electricity generation. There is an extra problem. Renewable energy, such as solar energy, might not emit carbon into the atmosphere, but it needs elaborate and often expensive means of transforming it into usable power. By contrast, as Richard Taken of Bathurst Resources explains, a lump of coal is hard to beat as a concentrated form of energy. A lump of coal is compressed plant matter. So a piece of wood has a calorific value of about 8 to 9, so that's 8 to 9 megajoules per kilogram, whereas a piece of coal has a colour of value between 20 and 30 megajoules. And it's even more pronounced than that because wood is about 70% moisture, whereas in a lump of coal, it's around about 10%. So you've got a lot more condensed energy source. So while there are strong arguments for doing something about CO2 emissions, few people seem to agree on what that something should be. One thing that many do concur on is that if the cost of carbon emissions had to be paid for by the people who emit them, then it would incentivize them to change their behavior, to catch the bus perhaps, or drive a more fuel-efficient car. This is the hope of many people planning to attend the next International Climate Change Conference in Paris later this year. In December 2015, in Paris, the world will have rendezvous with the future of the planet. The French Foreign Minister promoting the conference to delegates from around the world. The aim of the meeting is to try to get all countries, not just rich ones, to agree on real ways of limiting global warming to the two degrees agreed on earlier. It'll be the 21st time countries have met to try to make real progress. The US Secretary of State, John Kerry, says the stakes have never been higher. If we fail... Future generations will not and should not forgive those who ignore this moment, no matter their reasoning. Future generations will judge our effort not just as a policy failure, but as a collective moral failure of historic consequence. And they will want to know how world leaders could possibly have been so blind or so ignorant or so ideological or so dysfunctional and frankly so stubborn that we failed to act on knowledge that was confirmed by so many scientists in so many studies over such a long period of time and documented by so much evidence. 
Despite this pressure, many in the fossil fuel business in this country urge caution, saying a small state like New Zealand can't afford to take too many risks. Chris Baker of Stratera is one of them. I'm a technology optimist, and if we had alternative energy sources that allowed us to move away from uh, fossil fuels, I'd be as keen as the next person. But I don't want to see us in New Zealand cost jobs unnecessarily. In New Zealand, we could move to almost no emission, but we would cost a lot of jobs, and the planet would be totally unimpressed. So that's not a place I want to be. Cameron Madgwick of the Petroleum Production and Exploration Association puts it another way. When we look around the world, we actually look to an energy trilemma. So often we hear about the carbon side of that equation, the environmental sustainability side, but there are several other key components of that trilemma. So one is around energy security. So we've already mentioned the forward forecasts around an ongoing need for energy to fuel you know, the lives that we all have at the moment. There's also an energy equity component to that. And what that draws upon is, you know, looking at the developing world. There's a couple of billion people who currently live without electricity of any form, for example. And the energy equity component really looks to uh, make sure that there's some uh, equitable use of energy around the world so that we can't necessarily say those in the developing world can't enjoy the things we enjoy in the developed world. Both Mr Madgwick and Mr Baker are concerned about the cost of any sudden change. But John Kerry warns against the argument that people can't afford to cut down on CO2 emissions. He says the world can't afford not to. And Jeanette Fitzsimons recommends an incremental approach, not shutting down all coal mines, for instance, just not opening up any more and letting the industry gradually wind down. And she repeats the well-established line that the cost of doing nothing far outweigh the cost of changing to a low-carbon economy. And she says New Zealand hasn't done nearly enough about it. Cost is infinite if we're talking about the destruction of our way of life and our food supply and our water supply and our cities. So putting a price on it is hard. But I think the important thing about a carbon price is it's got to keep rising. It's got to be reliable and the money that it raises mustn't disappear into a government black hole. It needs to go back to the people. If I were designing it, I'd say let's start at $25 a tonne, which was written to the ETS originally and then sort of abandoned. And then let's signal in advance that it's going to rise by a certain amount every year and it may one day get to 100. There are people saying it needs to be that high. At this stage, the future is quite unclear, but it's almost certain that some steps will be taken in Paris towards making people pay for the carbon pollution they cause. I'm Eric Frickberg, and that's Insight for this week. If you have any thoughts on this program or want to get in touch with us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Tolley with technical production by William Saunders.